Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with the truth of your word, and open us to the news of your love, forgiveness, and grace. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God be with us in this hour. Bless us with your word, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Change is inevitable. It is all around us. You don't need me to tell you that. There are volumes of quotes about the inevitability of change. There are lists of best lists of quotes about change. I always think about change this time of year with young people finishing a grade and getting ready to go to a new school, leaving home for a first time, adults getting ready to retire. Many times that happens this time of year. Why is it important for us to talk about change in church? Well, because Jesus is always talking to people about change. He's always talking to them about changing their point of view on one thing or another. Change is hard for most of us. But I wonder what would happen if we thought about Jesus' invitations to think about things differently and considered them as opportunities to practice being better at change. What if church, what if reading the stories of the Bible was actually an opportunity to train ourselves to be more comfortable with the changes that will inevitably be part of our lives? In today's story, Jesus is again inviting people to change their point of view about something. And the story involves one of the many changes, one of the many exchanges uh, between Jesus and these people called the Pharisees. And in order to understand this story, most of us are first going to have to change our point of view about the Pharisees. Amy Jill Levine is a professor of New Testament at Vanderbilt University. She was a guest lecturer here at Knox not long ago. A.J. frequently points out that biblical interpretation in Christian churches usually gets the Pharisees terribly wrong. For most of us, the Pharisees are so bad, they get an adjective about how bad they are. Pharisaical, in the English language, is, according to Merriam-Webster, marked by hypocritical, censorious self-righteousness. Ew. Most of us hear about the Pharisees and we assume they are the enemy. The evil Pharisees are the people who are always out to get Jesus. A.J. Levine says, historically speaking, this is just not it at all. This is a misunderstanding that seriously limits our understanding of who Jesus really was and how challenging he was. So who are these Pharisees? Well, Pharisees were dedicated religious people. They were church-on-every-Sunday kind of people. They were teach-the-children-the-Bible kind of people. 
They were give at least 10% to the church kind of people. They were serve on church committees kind of people. They were take your faith to work kind of people. And beyond those regular things, Pharisees were more dedicated than that. They put God first in a real and powerful way. In all kinds of ways. For Pharisees, religion was a financial priority, not just before things like a bigger car payment, but before things like college tuition for your children. Time for prayer for the Pharisees came before time for soccer games, or dinners out, or going to your job. Bible study was not, if I have time today, it was the most important responsibility of the day. Pharisees were people who were the glue of the faith community. Trying to reorient modern people to the real historical context, A.J. Levine says, although a bit generous of an analogy, the Pharisee would be the equivalent of Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. The idea that either would not be in right relationship with God is preposterous. So the context of the story we are studying today is not that you're supposed to dislike the Pharisees. The correct context is that Pharisees, for people of faith, Pharisees are the people we should aspire to be. And that's the attitude we're supposed to have in hearing this week's story. So, Pharisees are good religious people. They care about their religion. The Pharisees are usually pushing back against Jesus, and that's true, but it is not because they are evil. It is because Jesus is changing something in which they are deeply invested. And religious people never take that lightly. Religious people are some of the worst when it comes to change. Take the example of Rob Bell. Many of you may have heard his name. Several years ago, he was on every news program in the country. He made Tom, Time Magazine's Top 100. Rob Bell is a pastor. He was the founding minister of the Mars Hill Bible Church near Grand Rapids, Michigan. A deeply gifted writer and preacher in a few short years, Rob Bell grew Mars Hill Bible Church from a church plant to over 10,000 worshipers every week. And he had an online following beyond that. What drew people in was his open and personal engagement with the Bible and the deep questions he was willing to ask about every core issue of faith. And those same characteristics led to the end of his ministry at the Mars Hill Bible Church. You see, over time, Bell's study and engagement with the Bible led him to start looking at things differently. So he ordained a group of women to leadership at Mars Hill for the first time. And he questioned the Iraq War in the context of sermons about Christmas. 
and he published a best-selling book called Love Wins, in which he questioned the compatibility of a belief in God's love with the existence of hell. In Bell's words, if someone who died a billion years ago is still being punished for sins that happened during their short lifetime, that's not good news, that's a nightmare. Bell didn't tell anyone else what they had to believe, but he asked questions, and he set an example of what it means to test the ideas of your faith. While the church continued to grow, its leaders began to see Bell's leadership as incompatible with their idea of religion. And so he had to leave. In spite of strongly credentialed preaching successors, today Mars Hill Bible Church is reportedly less than half the size it was. And the appeal of listening to Rob Bell struggle with questions has not gone away. He continues to write and preach in a theater in Los Angeles and in speaking engagements around the country. Looking back on his experience, Rob Bell says, there is a specific kind of venom that comes up when religious people are confronted with changing their views. Now with that backdrop, some history about the Pharisees and the story of Rob Bell, consider now the passage that we read today in Mark chapter 2. It's a similar story from about 2,000 years earlier. In this story, Jesus really messes with how people think a religious teacher is supposed to behave, and the Pharisees, who care deeply about their religion, are paying attention. Jesus gets in trouble for spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Here again, like with the Pharisees, we have to do a little resetting of the context. In our own modern culture, sure, most of us don't like paying taxes, and there are plenty of jokes leveled at people who work for the IRS, but that is not what is going on here. As commentator Emmanuel Larkey has written, in Jewish society at the time of Jesus, tax collectors were the scum of the earth. These Jews were vile traitors since they collaborated with the oppressive Roman colonial authorities against their own Jewish people, doing as it were, were the dirty work of the Roman Empire. Moreover, they were corrupt cheats because they exploited their own people to enrich themselves. They were thus sinners of the worst kind. Tax collectors in the ancient world were not unpopular bureaucrats. They were socially destructive to their own communities in the same way we tend to think about drug dealers and terrorists. All of that is context. Now, here's the challenge of the story. When the Pharisees ask Jesus why he is eating and drinking with these sinners, he replies, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. You've probably heard that before. 
But what does Jesus mean when he says he has come to call sinners? We usually think that he means he has come to call the sinners to repent, to change. But on reading the passage closely, we see that Jesus does not ask them to repent. There is no evidence that he judges the tax collectors and sinners. He calls them, he eats and drinks with them, he characterizes that eating and drinking with them as a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. But at no point does he speak to them in judgment. The offensiveness of this action can hardly be overstated. Jesus is not trying to reform these sinners. He is not trying to get them to be more like the Pharisees. He's just spending time with them. It is so objectionable that even other people who wrote the Bible disagree with it. We know with reasonable certainty that the Gospel of Mark, from which this story comes, was the earliest account of the life of Jesus to be written. The Gospel of Luke picks up on this same story and rewrites it several decades later using the Gospel of Mark as source material. And Luke is so deeply offended by what is going on in this story that he seeks to change its meaning. In Mark, Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. In Luke's version, Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke isn't satisfied with Jesus accepting sinners. Luke wants Jesus to fix them. Luke just cannot tolerate the idea that Jesus spent time with sinners and did not speak in judgment to them. So he adds a phrase contending that Jesus must have been calling these sinners to repentance. The most convicting thing I read about this passage of scripture was in a commentary by Randall Zachman. He's a theologian on the faculty at Notre Dame. Like most scholars, he is convinced that Mark's gospel is the oldest and most reliable version of what Jesus actually said. He is convinced that Jesus does something here that is offensive and nonsensical to us because he is so radically welcoming and non-judgmental. I'm going to read what Zachman writes at some length. We are convinced that the purpose of any religious community is to make people better, to change them from collaborators, traitors, and sinners into righteous and obedient saints. We are convinced that if we accept the invitation of Jesus to come unto him, to follow him, this of itself makes us better people. And we take great delight in comparing our moral and spiritual superiority to the disgusting and dissolute drug dealers, cocaine addicts, prostitutes, and terrorists who have not accepted the invitation of Jesus to follow him. We lament the fact that others will not improve their lives to meet our standards 
so that we might have fellowship with them, so that we might eat and drink with them. And Zachman continues, It never occurs to us that it is precisely our willingness to see ourselves as the standard that other people need to meet, to see ourselves as the judges before whom others stand or fall, to see ourselves as the gatekeepers to the banquet of the kingdom of God, that excludes us from being invited to the kingdom of God. That's a different way of thinking. That's Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees and to us. This is not to say that Jesus is never judgmental about anything. Turning over the tables of the money changers, naming systems of oppression, criticizing the powers that be, in plenty of ways, Jesus shows that he is opposed to the way things are in the world and wants them to change. Nor does Jesus seem to be making an argument here that everything old is bad and everything new is good. It's just that that's not what this story is about. This story is about humility and acceptance. Jesus is saying something deeply challenging and troubling to any of us who believe without question that our way of doing it is the right way and should be the standard. And if we find ourselves unable to tolerate it when someone raises questions about what we think, it's time to step back and consider that we may still have something to learn. When we come together as a people of faith, we should be challenged to look at things differently about the Bible, about our church, about ourselves. These stories are meant to be truly and deeply radical. There is a challenge in that, but there is also a gift. Life is full of change, and just about all of us need help at times tolerating the changes that come along in our lives. Especially at this time of year, routine and expected transitions like graduations and kids moving out and retirements show us again and again the need to build up our ability to If we can get used to hearing Bible stories as a welcome challenge to our beliefs, if we can come together hoping for church to be a training ground to strengthen us for the changes in our own lives, if we can do that, then living through life's inevitable changes might become a little bit easier. And the best news is that we are not left to do this work on our own or to do it perfectly. The one who invites us into this testing of our faith is Jesus. 
He is the one presenting the new ideas, forgiving our sins, offering us new wisdom with every turn of the page in these stories. All we have to do is listen and learn. Amen.